0: Good morning, welcome again to North Carolina Baptist, I'm so glad that you're here, um, and, and we're starting a new series this morning in God's Word, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it's a New Testament, I'm not sure what we should call it, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's, it's a book in the New Testament, you get through the pastorals, Timothy, Titus, right, and after you get to Titus, there's one page for Philemon, And then after Philemon, you get to the book of Hebrews. For the longest time, I always wanted to put Hebrews closer to Revelation than it is. So if you get to James or to Peter or to 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, you've you've gone too far. So right after Philemon, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in Hebrews for a while. Um, I was working on the, the Facebook live stream there for a second. and um, I apologize to the choir. I, I turned my mic on to make sure it was going to come on, and I think that was my interruption. You did a great job with Little Church of and I think I messed you up. I apologize for that. Um, but my my mentor, uh, my brother in Christ, who is also a Hebrew scholar, I noticed has dialed in over Facebook Live, so Chip, I hope I get this right. I love you. In Jesus' name. Uh, a good older brother in the faith whose father recently went to be with the Lord. He can be in prayer for him. Uh, just a great man of God. Amen. But we're going to look at Hebrews together. And Hebrews, the series, if we could summarize it in a, in a sentence, would be something like this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Whatever the world tells you is better than Jesus, they're wrong. Jesus is better. Whatever the world is telling you, you need to to surrender your money for or your life for or your emotional intensity for that is other than Jesus. They're lying to you. Jesus is better. He's lasting. He's forever. He's enduring. And he's better. And and the author of Hebrews is going to show us that in a variety of incredible ways over the next several weeks and months as we labor together through the book of Hebrews, obviously taking some breaks along the way for Christmas and Easter and whatever may come. But this morning, we're going to look at just just the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. And before we do that, I kind of want to introduce the book to you. The book of Hebrews ranks as among the most compelling and challenging books to understand in the New Testament, while early copies of the book give it the title, To the Hebrews... Like it's a letter, the book does not begin, as most letters do, with a customary greeting. If you think about the letters from Paul, he he says, you know, who's writing and who he's writing to and what's going on. We don't get any of that in the book of Hebrews. And in fact, the author calls this book a word of exhortation over in chapter 13, verse 22, which is, according to Lane, an earnest, passionate, and personal appeal. So it's not just a letter. You you might even say that it's like a sermon or a series of sermons. So you ought not be surprised that your pastor is really passionate about the book of Hebrews because it's like reading a sermon. So uh, a couple of other questions about the book of Hebrews. First is, well, what is it? And then second, who wrote it? Identifying the author of Hebrews is a question that we cannot answer definitively, even though many Bible scholars do not tire of trying to make their case. Definitively, In fact, the, the whole conversation about Hebrews, if you're reading commentaries and scholars and all this, they spend a lot of time talking about who the author is. And sometimes I just want to like, let's just get to the book from the interestingly enough. Let's let's dive into this issue, issue for just a minute from the earliest manuscripts or copies of the Bible that we have available. Hebrews is almost always carried along with the writings of Paul. Which is why many people have argued down through the centuries that the Apostle Paul wrote the book. There are, however, some problems with thinking that Paul wrote it. One, everywhere else, Paul identifies himself as the author. So every other letter Paul writes, he he tells you he's writing. Secondly, and I think more importantly, in chapter 2, verse 3, the author identifies himself with those to whom he's writing as a second-generation Christian. He says, look, we didn't hear this directly from Jesus. We heard it from those who heard from Jesus, which is exactly what Paul denies in his other writings. He denies that he's not a first-generation apostle, and he was. Why? Because God himself, the Son of God himself, on the road to Damascus, knocked him down, blinded him, and said, I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuted. You remember this? All right. So I don't think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. However, some some good people down through the centuries have, have disagreed with me. Here's, here's the bottom line. <coughs> Whether it's Paul or Clement of Rome or Barnabas or Apollos or Luke or Silas or Philip or Paul... Paul clearly thought that it was Scripture because it traveled along with his other letters as Scripture. So it's not debated whether or not it was embraced from the first days of the church as Scripture. Yes, there was some conversation about it along the way. But Paul always thought that it was Scripture because it was bundled with his writings. And the good news is this. Not one point of exegesis, which is just a big, fancy theological word for explaining what the text means... Not one bit of understanding what the text means depends on us knowing who the author is, because ultimately God wrote it. I'm sorry. Whoever the author is, he identifies closely with his readers. He uses the pronoun we often in this letter, suggesting to us that he considers himself to be a part of whatever the church is to whom he is writing. Perhaps it was a church in Rome or in Italy. Based upon the closing statement we find in chapter 13, verse 24, those who come from Italy send you greetings, which is interesting. Does that mean he's in Italy writing out or that he used to be in Italy and he's traveled away from it and encountered other people from Italy and writing back to Italy? There's different opinions on that. I think it's likely that he's away from Italy writing back to a church there about this situation, which we'll get more to that in a moment. So because of the title to the Hebrews and the incredible use and familiarity with the Old Testament, many Bible scholars think that this book is being written to Jewish Christians, those who have been Jews who have converted to Christianity. However, Paul's letters indicate in other places that Gentile believers quickly became familiar with the Old Testament. Think about the book of Galatians. So whether it's Jewish Christians... Or Gentile Christians or a mixed family, what is clear is that the Holy Spirit desires for us to read this book along with all other books as written to the church. This book is for you and it's for me. We don't have much information on the background that led to the writing of Hebrews. You can read a lot of Paul's letters and you can sort of tape together what's going on in the background. That's a little more challenging with the book of Hebrews, but as Dr. Kellam writes, there's two things that seem certain. One, the recipients were facing continued pressure for their faith in Jesus Christ, whether social or physical. Have you ever faced pressure for your belief in Christ? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, it would just be easier if I just gave up on this Jesus thing. I would have to fool with it. I would have to worry about it. I could do what I want to do. I could say what I want to say. I could go where I want to go. I wouldn't have to be restrained or constrained in anything that I do. Man, that would be so much easier. Well, the context that the author of Hebrews writes into, they could say that because the government and the, the jobs that people went to were making it harder and harder to believe in Christ. And guess what? Here's the answer that they were tempted to accept. Well, if it's hard to believe in Jesus, I'll just go back to Judaism. I'll just go back to the Old Testament and I'll pretend that I'm honoring God by at least doing the Old Testament stuff and ignoring the Jesus stuff. So this is the second half. A retreat back into Judaism was viewed, at least by some to whom he's writing, as an appealing solution to relieve the pressure that they're facing for belief in Christ. What's interesting is if he's writing back to Rome or to Italy... That would fit the situation under Emperor Nero very well. Judaism was tolerated while Christianity was persecuted, shunned, and shamed as a French cult under Nero. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that persecution is intensifying, but the church has not yet bled for their faith. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4. So the church is being pressured by society to retreat from faith in Christ or they will pay the price. Did you know that's even happening in our own country? It's even happening in these United States of America where we have the First Amendment. Did you know that if you're a professor in biology and you happen to believe a Christian and think that macroevolution is a bunch of bunk, which it is, that you can't even get a job anymore at most state universities? Even though science is on your side. This is... Not just for two centuries ago, it's for today. They are saying to the people to whom this author is writing, you don't have to not have faith. You can have faith, you just can't have the faith. You can have a faith, you just can't have faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't that long ago that everyone was fine to go to the synagogue. Everyone was fine with the temple. Everyone was fine to sacrifice an animal. But you all have gotten pretty radical. I mean, you are acting like somebody's changed you on the inside and that you're serving a king who is over even the emperor. You, you guys are nuts. So just dial it back a little bit and retreat to the Old Testament, and we'll let you be fine. Just strip Jesus out of the faith and have a faith, and we'll let you do whatever you want to do. But don't be so countercultural. Don't be so radical. Don't be so infectious. Don't don't go share the gospel with other people and tell them that if they don't bow the knee to Jesus who is king ruling over the heavens and the earth right now that they will perish in eternity. Don't do that. Because if you do that, we're going to call you prudes. We're going to call you extremists and foes and bigots. And we're going to marginalize you in your office. And we're going to tell you you can't be promoted. And eventually we're going to take your property and send you to prison and... Micromanage what your church says and does not say. Whoever writes Hebrews, he has a passionate desire for the church to press on toward maturity, to endure, to be faithful to Jesus Christ, even when faced with escalating persecution. We can be grateful as a church for the Book of Hebrews because it encourages us to persevere in the faith by reminding us Jesus is better and greater and superior and higher and whatever other word you want to put in there to anything else the world tells us we should worship. Even when it is costly to follow Jesus, He is worth every ounce of the cost. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe He's worth it no matter what? That's easy for us to say we don't live in a place yet where it's difficult to make that analogy. That no matter what it costs me, Jesus is worth it. And the author of Hebrews is so eager to make that case that he skips the introduction. He doesn't tell us who he is, who he's writing to. He just jumps in at verse 1. And this is what he says. Would you read the word of God? For me?" God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions... And in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, Through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Jesus. To endure church when pressured. To modify or retreat from faith in Jesus. There's three things we need to see in this text. Because you will face pressure if you are a follower of Christ to modify or retreat from the faith. All who love Jesus will be persecuted. To endure when pressured, we've got to believe that God spoke long ago and in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Secondly, we've got to understand that God's final word to us is His Son. And finally, we must understand who Jesus is. First, we've got to believe that God spoke long ago in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. The author begins by affirming something that all of his readers, even those who were tempted to run away from Jesus and back to Judaism, would have affirmed. Everybody would have agreed in that church, even those who were trying to run away, that God had spoken. God spoke long ago. And by the way, just a little tip. If you ever get in an argument with somebody, don't start with where you disagree. Start with where you agree. And that's what he's doing. Look, you might be tempted to run back to the Old Testament. And I believe with you that the Old Testament is from God and that is important. That's what he says in verse 1. God didn't remain hidden to us. He has spoken to us. And God spoke long ago. How long ago? He spoke in the beginning, Genesis 1 tells us. He spoke the whole world into existence. So the idea that God is just a man upstairs, that he's the God of deism, who set the world in motion and doesn't care, that's a bunch of crazy talk. God is a God who speaks. Are you glad that God has spoken? Are you glad that you can know him? that you can love Him, that you can belong to Him, that you can know that you know that He saved you? The only reason we have that hope is because God speaks. He could have stayed up there and not said a word. He didn't have to tell us who He is, but He did. And He made it abundantly clear by speaking long ago and then fulfilling what He prophesied long ago in His Son. Well, is this Jesus the real Jesus or not? Here's the Bible. Yes, he is. As Kistemacher writes, God is the originator of revelation. He's the source. He's the basis. He's the subject. The Bible's not about you. It's about God and how you can know that God. And as we'll see in a moment, God spoke long ago so that we could recognize Jesus right now. You know, God never speaks mindlessly. Do any of you all have preschoolers? I, I have had preschoolers, and I, Elizabeth, are you in here? Yes, she is. She just gave me the crazy face. But there was a season in her life where we would be driving back and forth from Raleigh to Virginia when we lived in Raleigh, and the, my daughter, man, she could string together some words, and I don't know where they were going. It was just she just liked to be talking, and that's okay. I, I'm a beautiful boys, beautiful girl, lover with all my heart. But sometimes I'm like, what is this about?
1: <laughs>
0: Just get to the point. Because <laughs> right now this sounds like it's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. God never does that. God is never full of idle, mindless, wandering chatter. He's always taking you somewhere with what He says. When God spoke, He spoke to the fathers in the prophets. This is not me. Only those officially called prophets in the Bible, by the way, but all the people that God worked through to give us the Old Testament. Jesus calls Abel the first of the prophets. Do you remember who Abel was? The first son born, killed by his brother. Jesus says he's the first among the prophets. His blood still speaks, Jesus tells us. Then he said this in Luke 24 25, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe. In all that the prophets have spoken, what he means there is the whole Old Testament, whether it's wisdom literature, prophetic literature, any kind of literature that's in the Old Testament, the prophets have spoken of Jesus. In verse 1, the author emphasizes the variety with which God spoke in the past. Let me me tell you something, a little Greek class this morning. Sometimes you can put something at the front of a sentence that doesn't normally belong there to make a point. It's like a giant highlighter on the text. So these words, many portions and in many ways, is fronted in the first verse. And what he's saying is God didn't just speak. He didn't just speak through the prophets, to the fathers. He spoke in a lot of ways and a lot of times. He spoke in the cool of the day. He spoke in the burning of a bush. He spoke on a mountain. He spoke in the wilderness. He spoke through plagues, through feasts, through visions, through dreams, through handwriting on a wall, and even through a donkey. And as Hobbes often tells me, I guess God can still use you. He did use a donkey. (laughs) Thank you, Bishop Marquez, for your vote of confidence. He's translating for me right now. So Hebrews begins by reminding us that God spoke long ago through the prophets. Peter says this, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. These weren't guys just making it up. They were under the guidance, listen to this, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And if Jesus is God, that means Jesus has been speaking from the beginning about Himself. Hello. It's not enough to know that God spoke in the past because God's story, like a good mystery is heading toward a resolution that makes sense of all the disparate pieces of the story through the one answer that God gives. Jesus is this final answer from... The son that God promised in Genesis chapter 3 immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve is the son that God has now sent in these last days as his final word. Why would we run back to previous words and ignore the final word that makes resolution and makes sense of all the words that God has ever spoken? You'll not understand any of the words unless you understand that Jesus is the word to whom the words of God point. Secondly, God didn't just speak back then. He speaks, he speaks in the here and now. He has spoken in the last days. We've got to understand that God's final word to us is His Son. There's a Christian song that says, Show me a revelation. Show me what to do. And I, I can't hear that line without thinking. I, I get your point, but we've already got the revelation. And we've already been told what to do. Yeah. The revelation is Jesus. And what we need to do is bow our knee to Him. Bow our heart to Him and obey Him. It's not that complicated, church. God has already spoken to you in His Son. While God speaking in the Old Testament is complete, He still speaks to us in the Old Testament about what His Son would be like, what faithfulness to Him would look like. The Word that God spoke long ago, we can't understand it without the Son as the concluding Word. Jesus is the Word of God From whom all the words of God originate and to whom all the words of God point. To read and apply the Bible correctly then, we've got to read the Bible like a quest. It's like an adventure story to know more of who Jesus is and how it is that we can serve and honor Him. So this means practically in this situation that retreating to Judaism in order to remain faithful to God... But not get persecuted by culture would not work. Right. You can't cut Jesus out of the faith and still have the faith. When we read verse two, we see something that the author a strategy that the author is using called compare and contrast. Did anybody here go to the first grade? That's when I was first introduced to compare and contrast. Do you remember compare and contrast? You'd read two stories and you compare and contrast the main character and the setting and all these different things. He's setting up a simple compare and contrast. In verse 1, God spoke long ago. In verse 2, He speaks in these last days. Now that is an amazing statement. Don't miss how important that statement is. God is speaking, has spoken in these last days. You say, last days? That sounds Familiar to me. Doesn't God talk about the last days in the Old Testament and say the last days are going to come and when they come, he's going to make things new and things are going to be renewed and it's going to be amazing? Yes. And guess what he says? Now that Jesus has come, we are living in the last days. We're not waiting for the last days. We are in the last days. Jesus has come. He's come to make all things new. And he's doing that already through his bride, the church. Did you know you can become a part of the reason that Jesus came? If you'll give your life to him and let him make you new. You can be a part of the last days, the end times. Taking the word of God to a lost and dying world. We are living in those days. Next we see a comparison of the audience. While God spoke to the fathers. Not typically to the entire people of God. He spoke to the fathers. He now speaks to all of us in His Son. The Spirit who rested on a few now will indwell all of the people of God. Next we see, excuse me, then we see a comparison of those through whom He spoke. Formerly, God spoke through the prophets. Now He speaks in His Son. Can you hear what the author is saying? Like, so God sent His only begotten Son as His final word, and you want to go back and just listen to a prophet? I mean, you do understand the difference between a prophet and a son, right? I mean, the Son knows the Father in a way that no one else could. Why would you give up life in the Son as the final word from God to have a pain-free existence for, for the next few minutes? It's the Son who's been with the Father forever and who can give you forever life. Why would you run away from the Son? And by the way, the prophets were writing about the Son anyway. It's not like they were writing about some other topic. They were writing about Jesus the whole time. That's what 1 Peter 1.12 says. It was revealed to them. Who, who's the them? The prophets. That they were not serving themselves, but You. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit. They are writing in anticipation of the revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ the Son. So if you throw away Jesus, you're throwing away what the prophets were writing about anyway, which means you've got nothing. Are you all tracking with me? Alright, I'm I'm a little excited about this passage, I'm sorry. And yet some were tempted to lop off the end of the story So they could have a comfort, a comfortable life. Man, if I could just throw away Jesus and all of His commands and being faithful to the church and obeying Him in adversity and sharing the gospel, wouldn't that be easier? Oh, it might be easier for a brief season. But it's not worth it. God spoke in a variety of ways long ago, but how did God speak in the latter days? He spoke in His Son. God spoke through Jesus and by sending Jesus. And I want to preach to the church for a moment. We live in a world where even some Christians, they crave the sensational more than they crave the Savior. Okay. They want a feeling. They want a dose. Man, I just didn't feel it this morning. Well, I just didn't get fed this morning. I just didn't that this morning. Well, some of us need to open up the Word of God and understand that where when we open the Word of God, He's speaking to us and there's nothing more amazing than that some of us want a momentary miracle more than we want everyday faithfulness God get me out of this jam get me out of this get me out of that and we don't just want to love Jesus who loved us and came as God's final word some of us are still going out looking for fire on the mountain like at Mount Sinai when God came to put fire in your hearts You don't have to run around looking for a dream or a vision or a revelation or a feeling to know what God wants of your life. He wants to save sinners who will live for the glory of His Son. He has sent His Son as the final answer. The Old Testament is the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment. There's no one other than Jesus who can save. And the Jesus who saves is a particular Jesus. He's the Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. He's the Jesus of verses 2 and 3, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. And as we move into our third and final point, I want to ask you just just to adopt a spirit of awe and appreciation for who Jesus is. Because when you really know who Jesus is, you're not going to want to retreat from Him. When you really catch the heart of who Christ is and what He has done for us, you're never going to want to. Immediately after we learn God has spoken and finally and decisively spoken in these last days through His Son, we discover that we've got to understand who Jesus is. We read this amazing explanation of who Jesus is. The author is telling us, if you think you can run away from Jesus, just let me remind you how great Jesus is. He's not just a son. He is the Son of God. He is appointed heir of the Father. All that belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus. As Jesus says in John ten thirty. I and the Father are one. Everything that God has and is, Jesus has and is. There's nothing the Father has that Jesus does not have. Including, by the way, Jesus' authority. Do you remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6? I'm the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which means that if He has the authority of the Father, that no one else has the authority to say, well, actually, there's another way other than Jesus. If Jesus says, I'm the door, and there's no other door, then there's no other door. And some of you this morning are teetering on the fence in your life. You're like, well, I can just throw away Jesus, I can run away from Jesus. You can't do it because there's no other door, there's no other way. As the Son and the eternal heir of all that belong to the Father, Jesus is God. Did you hear that? Jesus is God. That rules out any other possibility. It means Jesus did not become a God. It means that Jesus was not created by God. He is Creator God. That's right. He is. The Son of God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, all three of whom have a role in creation. Look at verse 2. Notice these words. Through whom also He made the world. The the point that Jesus made all that is is well established in Scripture, not just here, but in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through Him. Can you say all things?
1: All things. all
0: things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing, can you say nothing? Nothing, nothing came into being, that has come into being. That means He made it all. And just in case you thought that excluded something, it excludes nothing. Colossians 1.16 says the same thing. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Have been created through him and for him. The author of Hebrews is making a critical point. Jesus is the only option for true salvation because Jesus is the source of all that is. There is no other authority over creation that Jesus does not have. No other prophet, no other son, no other king, no other ruler. No one else can rise up and say, I can offer salvation. Only the one who made it all can save. The Holy Spirit, Moeller says, through the author of Hebrews, is placing the story of Christ within the context of God's entire redemptive plan. A redemptive plan that spans from creation to new creation. You say, Daniel, what in the world does that mean? I don't understand that. It's fine. Here's what it means. Because Jesus made it all, He can redeem it all. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you can either be a part of that or not, depending on how you're going to respond to His offer to rescue you. But if you receive His offer to rescue you, it's a whole lot more than fire insurance. It's a whole lot more than just not going to hell. When Jesus really rescues you, He makes you a new creature. He makes you a new being. It means your parenting will be different than it otherwise would have been. It means your marriage will be different than it otherwise would have been. It means the way that you work will be different than someone who has not been changed by Him. It means the whole way that you see life and what you look forward to and what you anticipate most. And it means that inside of your being craves and longs for something different than what the world craves and desires because you're a new creature in Christ who has the power to do that in your heart because He Made it all to start with. Amen. Are you with me? Yes. It doesn't mean come walk an aisle, pray a prayer, check a box, and never be in church again. That's not salvation. Salvation is a total life change wrought by the miraculous event that occurs when the Spirit of God applies what Jesus did in substituting His perfect life for you in place of your sin-stained life, applying it to your heart and radically changing you on the inside, giving you, you new desires and appetites and affections and a whole new way of seeing the world. That is salvation. And we've sold it short by having little rallies and evangelistic preachers come in and do a call and raise a hand and people come forward and we never see them again. Those people aren't saved. We're not going to count decisions at North Road Baptist Church. We're going to make disciples. People who go the distance for the glory of Christ the King. That's our mandate. Are y'all here? Amen. Man, I don't want a bunch of phony baloney decisions. Amen. That's not helping anybody. In fact, some people are going to hell thinking they're okay with God because they prayed a prayer when they were seven and they never darkened to the door of the church again. Some people heard Billy Graham and they think they prayed a prayer and then they never loved the brethren. They, they left three wives in the dust and they cheated on their job and they never lived a changed life. Those people are not saved. So verse 2 has established for us that Jesus is the creator of all the worlds, all the ages, all the times. But in case we still had our doubts that he is the divine creator, look at verse 3. It just gets better. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation, representation of his nature. Let's break let's this down. First, Jesus is... Not he was, not he might be. Jesus is and always will be. There's no other light that we should be seeking because Jesus is the radiance, the brightness of God's glory. He's not just a reflection of God's glory. He's the substance of the glory of God. Somewhat like sunlight is to the sunshine. You don't know where one end and one begins. He is God and he's the brightness of his glory, his heaviness, his praiseworthiness. And the way that you know the glory of God is by the light of His Son. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 1 John says that He's the light of God, and in Him there is no darkness, not at all. Jesus, as the Son of God, is also the exact representation or the precise imprint, get these next words, of His nature. Right. This is a critical word. It means whatever God the Father is made of, and nobody made Him, but whatever He consists of is what the Son consists of. If you could take a a swab of the inside of the Father's cheek, and no, the Father does not have a cheek, but if you could, because God is Spirit. But if you could get a little Petri dish and do a swab of the Father and a swab of the Son, and you... Smear them, Do the smear there and put them under the microscope in the Petri dish. If you could look at the DNA sample of the father and the DNA sample of the son, you wouldn't know which is which. They are the exact same. As Ellingsworth writes, verse 3 reveals the essential unity and the exact resemblance between God and his son. Church, this side of the new heavens and earth, the clearest picture you will get of who God is, is he in Christ as revealed in the Bible? This is why Protestants have always been so against like worshiping icons and having to have art all over the place. It's, yes, it's not wrong to have a cross and that sort of thing. But you will never see Jesus so clearly as when you see him in the word of God. Jesus created the world. He reveals the glory of God. He shares in God's nature completely. Do you see what comes next? He upholds the world by the word of his power. If Jesus stops for one minute speaking the word, universe, bow before me. Everything flies apart. He is actively bearing up, sustaining the universe right now. He made it. He upholds it. He can end it. He can do with it what he wants to do with a word. After establishing that Jesus is the final word and He is God, Hebrews makes a pivot from the deity of Jesus. He's creator. He reflects the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God and He is the substance of God. He takes us then to Jesus' humanity. Do you see it there? He is the only one who can cleanse our sin, purify our sin. Unlike priests who must purify themselves and keep on act, offering sacrifices to cover sins, Jesus comes and offers himself to purify us on the inside. He came to cleanse us of our sins, so why would we abandon the only one who can forever make us clean? You see, in the temple sacrificial system, the sacrifice stays dead, but not with Jesus. After Jesus dies to cleanse us and purify us, He is raised and He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where He is enthroned. And this is the primary point that the author is making. Not simply that He can cleanse our sin, but on the way to the crown that He received, He went through a cross. And if Jesus had to go to a cross in order to wear the crown, then rebellious, wicked sinners who've been saved by Him ought not be surprised that we face some adversity along the way. If Jesus went to the cross and he made it all, then we can surely endure some hardship and adversity for the king who died for us, who came for us, and saves us to the uttermost. Jesus fulfills the promise of Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your To be at the right hand means to have all the power of God. To have a full share in the power of God without limitation. He has the power to heal, to restore, to deliver, to conquer depression, and to even raise from death. So yes, church, we're going to face adversity if we stay faithful to Jesus. But why would we turn back from being faithful to the one who's already fought the war for us? We should take heart. When we suffer, we are suffering for the Creator, the Sustainer, and the King of the Universe, who has overcome the grave and now sees us and is coming again for us. So if I could boil this book down to the one sentence, it would be this. If you reject the person of Jesus because of the problems that it brings in a world that is against Him, you miss not only the point of the Scriptures, But also the power that comes when you live on mission to the glory of our risen King. This morning, if you don't know Him, we invite you to come and trust Him. Jesus, God's final answer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We bow our hearts before you. And we ask in this moment of response that we would not shrink back. From drawing near to you. God that you would remind us of the access. The bold access that we have. In the throne room of God. Because of the blood of Jesus. God there are some this morning. Who are teetering in their marriage. They're teetering in their parenting. They're, They're teetering in their workplace God. They're wondering if you are worth it. And you've just reminded us how great you are. God, we didn't deserve you, we couldn't earn you, but we love you. And we confess that our love falls so far short of your love for us. And God, I pray this morning, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, hasn't truly been changed by you from the inside out, that today would be the day. We glorify you in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to stand as we sing together,
1: Bless the Lord.
0: they're searching for can't be found anywhere else, but the hope that they find in you will exceed their greatest expectations. Lord, we ask that you would make us bold witnesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen.